Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. It's Indigenous Peoples Day, everyone. Now, it may not be a federal holiday or even a state holiday, but we are celebrating. Today, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of a This Is Nashville episode from April, exploring our Indigenous origins. We'll take you back in time. Yeah, that's something we do a lot in our shows. This time, we're going all the way back to what Cherokee activist and local historian Albert Bender calls ancient Nashville. Everybody here needs to know, everybody who lives in modern Nashville needs to know that there was a huge, huge Native American city here from 900 years ago. What was ancient Nashville like? And how many indigenous peoples lived here long before the rest of us settled in Middle Tennessee? That's coming up later in the hour. But first, let's talk about voting. Listen, y'all, it's not too late to register. In fact, the deadline is tomorrow. In case you don't know where your polling location is, what district you're in, or what your voting rights are, we've got you covered. We spoke to Davidson County Election Commissioner Jeff Roberts back in July, and we're bringing you all the key takeaways you need now as we head into the November election. Jeff, welcome to This Is Nashville. Glad to be here. So happy to have you with us. So, you know, let's start with voter registration. How do people check to make sure that they're registered to vote? Probably the easiest way would be to uh, check online. You can go to GoVoteTN and look yourself up, and it will tell you uh, everything you need to know to be prepared to vote for this upcoming election. Okay, but what if I could swear I was registered, but it says I'm not? If you can swear you're registered or think you're registered, uh, the kind of the fallback fail-safe position on election day or during early voting, we will let you vote a provisional ballot. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, it's the backup. So if there's any issue, you vote a provisional ballot, and then we can research your situation after the fact. Now, is it too late to register for the upcoming election? You're in good shape if you want to register for the November election. Your last day to register for that November election is October the 11th. So what is the process of registering online? It's pretty simple. Um, we use, uh, the state has a program that actually goes out and bounces against the Department of Homeland Security with the state, essentially your driver's license. And if you have a driver's license in Tennessee, you can register online. If you don't have a driver's license in Tennessee, let's say you just moved here from another state, mm -hmm. you can go to the Department of Homeland Security near you, get your new Tennessee driver's license, and at the same time, register to vote. All right. Well, what if someone meets all the eligibility criteria, but still gets denied or an error message using the online form? What do they do then? It's going to allow you to, if you have a printer, you can print off the voter registration application, simply fill it out and either bring it to us at our offices, or you can put, drop it in the mail. Okay. 
What about registering in person? In person, like in in person is another great option. You can come uh, any of our regular office hours. Uh, we're located on Murfreesboro Pike, across from if you know Monell's restaurant. We're across the street, or we have a satellite location down on Second Avenue at the Fulton campus. Now, what documentation? So either of those locations, you can come in person. Okay. Actually. So, what documentation would I need if I come in person? You really don't need any documentation. You bring yourself and you fill it out. We have some simple questions. The main thing is, what is your residential address and what is your social security number? Mm-hmm. Now, there are a lot of people moving here at a pretty rapid rate. What advice would you give to a new Tennessee resident? Probably the, the biggest piece of advice I would give would be to, to check on Tennessee's actual voting laws because they may be different than the state that you moved from. Some states allow uh, same-day voter registration or the deadline is 10 days before the election. In Tennessee, it's 30 days. Some states, you don't have to present anything when you show up to vote. In Tennessee, we require that you have a photo ID that's issued by either the state or the federal government. So if you've moved here from Wyoming, your Wyoming driver's license would not be sufficient. We would need a Tennessee driver's license or maybe your passport that was issued by the federal government. If I don't have one of those, what should I do? If you don't have one of those, you can, you will vote a provisional ballot and then you have two days to bring that to us. So let's say you forgot your passport. That's what you were going to use and you just left the house and forgot it. You can still vote. We will let you vote on a provisional ballot and then you will bring your passport out to our office and your vote will count. All right, we've been talking about registering. Now let's talk about actually casting that ballot. We just went through the redistricting, and that means people might be in new congressional districts or have a new polling location, or both. First, Jeff, how many folks have seen a change in their polling location? Do you have an estimate? We're, we're estimating somewhere probably around 80% of the people are voting at a new location mm. now as compared to the November 2020 presidential election. Okay. So if that was the last election you voted in, it would be a good idea to go to the GoVoteTN site again and just check to see if your polling location has changed. Now, you really only need to be concerned about that if you're voting on election day because election day, you have to vote at your polling location. If you're voting early, you can vote at any of our 11 locations across Davidson County. How about mail-in ballots? We will get it out to you just as quick as we can. We have to receive that absentee ballot through the mail 
by election day. That's another one of those things that's a little bit different than other states. Okay. Some states, you have to have it by election day. Some states, it could be depending on what the postmark is, or they automatically say up to seven days after the election. It just depends on the state that you live in. So make sure to get those ballots in by election day. Check. Now, a question we got a while back is, if I'm a Republican, can I request the Democrat ballot or vice versa? You can request uh, the ballot that you think represents your needs as of today. I mean, you know as well as I do that um, nationally, people are, are changing the parties that they feel like they're affiliated with on, almost on a daily basis. So, you know, that could change each day as things happen. Uh, all you need to do is tell us which ballot do you prefer today. So what are the top questions you have received so far? I think a couple uh, big questions. The main one, what do I need to bring with me in order to vote? And it's simple. The, that photo ID issued by the state or federal government, you don't need your voter registration card. That's more for just informational purposes for the voter. Now, if people have questions or concern, again, who should they contact? They, they can contact our office directly at 615-862-862. 8,800. Now, you may get transferred to another person depending on exactly what your question is about. Uh, we have some in-house experts on different areas of the election, but we will get back to you. Even if you leave a message, we will call you back. Now, on election day, if people show up and they're in line when the polling location closes, will they still be allowed to vote? Yes. Uh, even so election day, polls are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. If you're in line at 7 p.m. and you still have not gotten inside to vote, you will be allowed to vote. Uh, if, if there's a big line, we will actually put a poll official at the end of the line to designate everyone in front of me gets to vote. Everyone behind me arrived too late. Make sure that you get in line. Okay, so, you know, Jeff, what do you want to make sure anyone and everyone who intends to vote knows about the process? I would say that the probably the main thing that we want to pass along is that um, in, in Davidson County and in Tennessee, the laws are put together in such a fashion to protect the integrity of the vote. If you, if you show up to vote, your vote will count if you're eligible to vote. So as long as you're a registered voter and we can prove you're a registered voter, your vote will count. If there's some question about whether or not you're a registered voter at the time, we're gonna let you vote a provisional ballot and we're gonna double check to make sure maybe there was some paperwork that we missed, your vote will count if you should have been on our rolls on election day. He is a wealth of information and knowledge. That is Jeff Roberts from the Davidson County Election Commission. Jeff, 
Thanks so much for being here and breaking down the process. Thanks for the invitation. We have to take a short break. When we come back, in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of an episode we aired in April exploring our Indigenous origins. So stay with us. This is Nashville. And this is Nashville. Today, we are journeying back to ancient Nashville. Who were the first inhabitants of this land? And how did they live? In our first episode of This is Nashville, Cherokee historian Albert Bender joined us in a conversation about so-called old and new Nashville. For Albert, old Nashville goes a bit further back than you might be thinking. He said that over 900 years ago, ancient Nashville was a Native American city with tens of thousands of residents. Now, after the show, we got an email from a listener disputing those numbers. So we decided to do a whole show about it, to give this topic the time it needs so we can dig in a little deeper and gain a better understanding of our indigenous past. So. To get more clarity on just how many people lived in prehistoric Nashville, we reached out to archaeologist Aaron Dieterwolf, co-author of Mastodons to Mississippians, Adventures in Nashville's Deep Past. So before the arrival of European settlers in Tennessee, this area was occupied by Native Americans. And the first indigenous Native Americans to arrive in this area did so during the end of the last ice age, at least 14,000 years ago. Starting about 900 AD, we begin to see this movement into what we identify as the Mississippian period, where you start seeing the construction of these large towns and things that we would even recognize as cities being built around groups of earthen mounds. To be clear, Mississippian is an archaeological term we use for the people who were indigenous to Southeast North America. We don't know exactly what they called themselves, but we know their ancestors of native tribes we do know today. And during that period, the population locally seems to increase dramatically, and that's evidenced by the number of recorded archaeological sites and also by the size of some of those larger sites. Aaron explains that it's always difficult to estimate population sizes because so much of the archaeological record is lost or destroyed by time or construction. Now, there's an 1823 account from Judge John Haywood, one of Tennessee's earliest historians that addresses this. And it's what our guest, Albert Bender, was referring to. It mentions the large number of Native American burial sites uncovered during the development of the neighborhoods we now call Germantown and Salemtown. And he has this kind of offhand remark in which he says that based on the number of graves that are being encountered, he thinks that the population that once resided here in the indefinite past for him was 20 times that of the present day. And so he's basing that on the number of skeletons that are being encountered during home construction. The thing is, Judge Haywood's number is based on the bodies found in just those two parts of town. And we don't know which bodies came from which time period, because 19th century construction crews weren't exactly conducting archaeological research. Now, in Williamson and Davidson County alone, there are 30 mounds of earth, and there's evidence of settlements and villages built around these mounds. Based on the number of archaeological sites in Middle Tennessee 
and the size of some of those sites, we can say conservatively that there were thousands and thousands of people living here in the Mississippian period. So while it's really difficult to estimate the exact population that lived here in prehistoric Nashville, there is archaeological evidence of a city of thousands of people. There's a lot we can't know for certain about ancient Nashville, but what we do know is that these are the ancestors of many modern tribes we know today. And then archaeologically, the areas between those sites are filled in with smaller villages, with single-family farmsteads, and all of that is arranged around roads and routes and traces that we still recognize today and that are actually part of our urban landscape of Nashville today. And so we have this much different picture of Nashville than it being this uninhabited wilderness untouched by man. And instead, we recognize that during the Mississippian period, Nashville was an urban landscape, that there were thousands of people living here permanently, creating cemeteries, building architecture, you know, living along both sides of the Cumberland River and all the way up its tributaries. Thanks to our producer, Rose Gilbert, and archaeologist Aaron Dieter-Wolf for helping break that down for us. I'd like to welcome Albert Bender back to the program. He's a Cherokee activist and historian. Albert, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So we know that there was a large urban population here. Why is that so important for us to remember? Well, it's so important to remember because, one, it will give an idea and an awareness of the greatness and gloriousness of the Native American population and how advanced the Native American population was. Because we're talking about a population in uh, 1300 that was approximately 400,000 inhabitants. And I would say this, if we err in terms of our estimation of the number of 400,000, we're erring in terms of underestimating the population. I would say that the population was even over 400,000. And also, what has to be kept in mind is that 400,000 is the figure given for the immediate Nashville area. That's not taking into account the uh, suburban areas of ancient Nashville that were composed of uh, towns, of villages, hamlets, individual farmsteads. When you take that into account, you have a population of over a million, and which would make this the largest Native American population in the Southeast. And the figure of over a million is what I uh, recall reading several years ago from documents from the Department of Archaeology and also from MTSU. So it's, it's hard to estimate that number for sure, as we just heard. But tell, us, tell me more about what it, what it looked like for the people of Nashville back then. Well, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a large, huge, vast, ancient, bustling Native American city. We're talking about a city composed of uh, very uh, skillful leadership, a city of <clears throat> engineers, a city of artisans, a city of warriors, a city of uh, families that 
inhabited what is now downtown Nashville. And again, downtown Nashville sits on top of the ancient city. And we're talking about a city that encompassed both banks of the uh, Cumberland River. The east bank of the Cumberland River, which is now being looked at by large corporations for development, was also part and parcel of the ancient city. In the east bank of the Cumberland River, uh, the uh, city that existed there extends also into uh, significant parts of what is now East Nashville. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the ancient history of the first inhabitants of this land and discovering more about what life was like during that time. I'd like to welcome our next guest, Charles Robinson. He is a member of the Choctaw Nation who serves on the Tennessee Archaeological Advisory Council. Charles, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. So, you know, we heard at the top of this segment about the dense urban environment that existed during the Mississippian period, right here. Later on, our state was home to modern-day peoples, including the Shawnee, Cherokee, Choctaw, and Muscogee Creek. What happened to those populations? Well, a lot of those tribes and those people groups uh, only came into Middle Tennessee uh, different times throughout the year. Uh, my people, the Choctaw, for instance, were primarily down in what we know as Mississippi and Alabama today, but they were not, this was not necessarily a permanent home up here for the Choctaw. Many kind of came and went seasonally for hunting or for trading or for ceremony. Then after all that, of course, when uh, our people began to settle uh, with, with, the, with the Removal Act and, and the various uh, you know, ways the government began to uh, what became known as the Trail of Tears began to send our people uh, to west of the Mississippi River, uh, you know, and, and well, we know what happened with that. But they all just kind of dispersed, I guess. But what I would say is that Middle Tennessee, what we know here is Nashville, um, for the most part, uh, particularly my people in Choctaw, this is not a permanent home for us. Again, we came through here, and this is a place uh, for a number of reasons that a lot of tribes would come through seasonally and spend time here, but then go back. Uh, to their ancestral grounds. We heard just a bit ago about some of the challenges that keep us from fully understanding our indigenous past. What are some reasons for that? Well, so much of it is that uh, we're kind of out of sight, out of mind, mm-hmm. right? People do not necessarily, uh, when, when you don't see natives running around in, in, in your community, you kind of forget we exist. Uh, and so the issues uh, that our people have always dealt with have kind of uh, been overlooked uh, for a few reasons. One of which, because for most natives, we do not live in areas that um, were large enough voting block uh, for people running for office. So they don't need to necessarily cater to our needs and to our um, and, and to the things that are important to native people. Uh, so it's easy to overlook us. You know, you're on the State Archaeological Advisory Council. With, so tell me, why is it important to have Native people involved in excavation on these sites? Well, to, uh, to our Native people, there is a, a respect um, that we have for our ancestors, for our past, for our, uh, for, for our culture. Uh, we seem to place a greater importance on that than 
than non-natives do, generally speaking. Uh, and so when you come when we come across items through uh, through digs or archaeology uh, to get a native perspective on the value and the importance of of having these things, retaining them. Um, is, is very, very important because it reflects such a huge part of our history. As you know, once you dig something up, you can, you can put it on display in a museum, um, but it's just not quite the same. Now, people get to, it's like, it's like going to a zoo and seeing animals in a zoo. You get to learn a little bit about the monkeys and the lions and stuff, but you don't really know them, right? And so in our attempt to preserve uh, history, uh, in Tennessee, which I, I, I'm thankful they were able to do this, um, we're really helping out future generations as well. Albert, I'd like to get your perspective on that. Well, um, I think that um, I would uh, completely agree with what um, Charles is saying. And uh, the reason for having a Native person on the Archaeological Advisory uh, Council is so that when remains are discovered, that the remains are treated with the respect and dignity and according to tribal protocols. And uh, that standard has to be observed. And again, I think that's one of the uh, primary reasons for having a Native person on the um, Advisory Council. You know, Charles, you grew up in the Choctaw community in Oklahoma. Then you moved here to work in the music industry, where your community, as you said, is significantly less visible. Tell me what that change was like for you. Well, it was interesting because here in Middle Tennessee, when people meet natives, we're more of a novelty. Uh, there is a great respect I, I find that people have for our native people here, and they want to share about their native ancestry as well. Uh, uh, but uh, sadly, because you, we, don't, we don't have a long history or cultural community here of Native people, it's easy, um, it's easy to just kind of fall into the glamorized dances with wolves view of who Native people are. And for, and for many Natives uh, who do not know their, their culture, our ceremonies, our languages, these things, we kind of always default to the Hollywood version of who we are. And... Uh, uh, but I have found that in Middle Tennessee, I've been extremely well received. We do work in, on uh, Native communities throughout the U.S. and Canada through my wife's organization. And uh, I find the border towns around the reservations out west are extremely racist. And uh, um, it, it's a, a tough place for Natives to be in those border towns. But here in Middle Tennessee, we've been received with open arms, which, is, uh, which has been very nice. Albert, have you found similar experiences when you venture outside of Middle Tennessee in your work? Well, uh, yes, there is a lot of prejudice uh, toward Native Americans in different parts of the western areas of the United States. Again, as Charles had said, particularly on around uh, reservation uh, border towns. And I also had a very negative experience uh, when we first moved here, myself and my family, my wife and son, we uh, frequently traveled back and forth to the um, Eastern Cherokee Reservation. And um, I write for the uh, American Indian Press and other publications. And so we um, 
checked in or attempted to check into a motel for the night. And as soon as I walked into the lobby, the um, one of the proprietors, who was a lady, she said, well, uh, hold on, I have to get someone else to talk to you. And so this very uh, incensed older white man comes out to the uh, counter and tells me point blank, uh, you can't stay here because we don't rent rooms to Indians. And this was, as I said, near the Cherokee Reservation in eastern North Carolina. So border towns do tend to be extremely prejudiced in many cases toward Native Americans, even here in the southern parts of the United States. Now, taking it back to Nashville and looking at what the changes that are happening, we all know Nashville is changing very, very fast. There's development and wherever there's development, we're more likely to find archaeological sites, but also to damage them. Albert, is that a concern for you? Yes, that is uh, definitely a paramount concern. And I will give you an example. In 2014, when the excavations or digging started for the Sound Stadium, myself and other people in the Native community asked and requested um, and also demanded that some type of archaeological excavation be done of the area before construction began. And as a result of our efforts, that is when the remains were found of the ruins of the vast ancient Native American city. So that's why it's so important for archaeological excavations to be done wherever you have development done in Middle Tennessee. I mean, what happens to these archaeological sites that hold so much information and so many stories? Well, uh, without um, proper monitoring, the sites are simply destroyed. Charles, I'd like to get your response to that. Yeah, I think it's uh, we we see these um, burial sites and in, in, uh, towns and communities all over the place. Anytime there's a, a new construction site going on in Middle Tennessee, and uh, it's a shame once we destroy some of these artifacts because there's so much we can learn about the people that used to live here uh, long before we did. There's so much we had that they still have to offer us the educational aspect of it for our children, the ceremonial aspect of it, the culture, all of these things that can benefit us today, make us better people, better humans today. Uh, but sadly, too many times just to try and rush through a project, we're just bulldozing over these things, cherry picking what we want out of them or the whoever's on the site, you know, taking what they want and bulldozing and uh, and moving on, right? Without trying to do it without ever mentioning that you know that they found anything, so that's a shame because it really still has so much to offer, um, and, and I really lean on the educational aspect of it for our children, uh, and I want our children and the school kids especially to understand the value of uh, retaining uh, part of our past, and and I don't mean just the you know last couple hundred years past, but you know uh, five hundred years, a thousand years, two thousand years, to all these things we can learn. Um, let's, let's try and hold on to those best we can. That's Charles Robertson. Charles, make sure to stay with us throughout this break. 
I want to thank Albert Bender, Cherokee activist and historian. Thank you, sir, for your time and your expertise. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this rebroadcast of our April episode, all about our indigenous origin. After the break, we'll bring the conversation into the present day. Stay with us. This is Nashville. Kalona, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we talked about Nashville's native roots. Now we're going to talk about the present moment, and that begins with the land. Tech giant Oracle is set to move into the East Bank downtown. Some have raised questions about the development, including our last guest, Cherokee activist Albert Bender. He and others have voiced concerns that this kind of development will further erase our ancient Native American history. That's why he organized a gathering last November to ask that indigenous voices be included in the conversation about developing the East Bank. Melba Chakote Eads, a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation of Oklahoma, performed the land acknowledgement for a small crowd. We acknowledge that we are on traditional land of indigenous people, including the Mississippian people and their descendants, the Yuchi, the Muscogee, Kwisati, Shawnee, Chickasaw, Cherokee Nations. Nashville is located between the ancient city of Moundville, uh, Mound Bottom, excuse me, Browns Creek, Castilian Springs Mound, Sellers Farm, and many other sacred places. And now after I have said the land acknowledgement and those indigenous people that were here from millennium, I would like to also state that we would like to honor, acknowledge, and recognize indigenous tribes and the tribal nations who were forcibly removed from the original habitants. They are the keepers of the land and water and they now make their present day Nashville and in the areas of Tennessee. Tribes that were forcibly removed to lands west of the Mississippi River to Oklahoma are the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee Creek, and the Seminole. So those are the main points that we want to say. The Trail of Tears came right through Nashville here. We're standing on indigenous land. We are now calling the mayor to recognize the indigenous place and the sacred place of these mounds. We're joined now by student Dante Reyna, who is advocating for land acknowledgement at Vanderbilt. They are Sotseil Maya and a member of the indigenous scholars at Vanderbilt. Dante, welcome to This is Nashville. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Tell us about this work you're doing to get your university to use land acknowledgements. Well, I think it's important because when we talk about the land, uh, we must recognize that the land is a part of who we are. And it's a part of who the people were here and who are here. And it's a mixture of our blood, our past, our present, and our future. And to acknowledge the land is, is to honor the relationship and to understand the longstanding history that has brought people to reside on the land. 
And this is not by any means new. Many indigenous people across the world, dating back centuries, honor the land in different ways. How did you learn to honor the land? Uh, specifically in my tribe, we um, make a traditional drink called Tesuino. And every, every year we um, honor the land by offering it the first sip of our drink. And that drink is made out of the first harvest of the year. Our next guest is also trying to carve out space for indigenous communities by building a cultural resource center. Sally Wells is president of NAIA, the Native American Indian Association. Sally, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. It's an honor for me to talk with y'all. Pleasure to have you with us. Tell us, tell us more about the cultural center. It's going to be here within a few more years. We had started dreaming about this about 1991, somewhere in that area, we started to build the center here for the Indian peoples and and non-Indian peoples, too. So uh, we started, and we didn't have no money, so we started as a donation, and we started having festivals and things like that. And we wrote some grants to help us out, and we carried on from that, and we're getting closer to build this center. I think uh, most of the groundwork is it's just about finished. So after that, we're going to start building. Tell me, what would the significance of having this center be for you and your communities? When uh, myself and Ray Emanuel, this was back in the uh, 70s, uh, we were here in its middle Tennessee. We didn't know if there was any Indians in the area or what. We didn't know. Ray, and I, Ray is Columbia Indian, and we, her, him and I met uh, in his business store, and we start talking about it, and we keep talking about it, and we keep talking about it, and see what we can do. So we decided we could have social gathering. So and see how many Indians can show up. So that's how we started, and uh, from there on, people helped us a lot. Uh, people like mayor and uh, some of the state people, they help us and they give us advice what we need to do. And advice is what we need the most, and of course money too. But advice is was good working thing that we did and taking that their advice and do what they says and, and that was working really well so uh that's how we started and uh the first meeting we have was at the Cumberland river uh right in front of a courthouse we met there and that's where we decided we're going to have native american indian succession so we passed the hat out for money to send the people a letter. And to buy, with that money, we were going to buy stamps. And that's how we started. And we keep going and keep going. Sometimes we get down, but we get up and go, keep going. So that's where we are today because of that. And we uh, have come meet people. And there are, there are quite a few Indians in, in Davidson County. I know that. What we need to do is uh, raise some money, and some of these Indian people out of reservation come to Nashville and 
they just come without the money. So for the center, it's a resource center and a gathering place. Talk to me about yes. the, the resources you all will provide people. This building is going to be one of the part of the building is going to be where we're going to, the kids, if they want to know something about Native, they're going to come to our building and, and uh, see the maybe video or tape or listen to tape or reading a book, things like that. And uh, if we have enough, enough land to do this, we're thinking about setting a teepee up and for the, uh, the uh, kids want to camp out for the weekend, they can do that also. Charles Robertson is still here with us. Charles, you know, what are your thoughts on the cultural center and its significance for our Native communities? You know, uh, it's interesting. One of the, the segments uh, I was listening to before we all came on air was talking about uh, local museums and the Frisk Museum, which has some fantastic exhibits that come through. But uh, in Middle Tennessee here, we, don't, we do not have uh, a museum of any sort that really focuses in on our Native people and, 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 our, and the indigenous people that have been here for so long. And with this cultural center, that's my understanding. That's a, going to be a big part of it. We'll give uh, kids and, uh, and visitors uh, a place to come to learn about the Native history and the ancestry of the folks that were here long before them. Uh, and it's long, long overdue for, uh, for Middle Tennessee to have something like this. I think personally it'll be, uh, become one of the biggest tourist spots in Middle Tennessee uh, because it, it, it garners such great interest from outsiders. Um, you know, when people come to town now, they all, they, you know, they go to the Ryman, they go to downtown uh, Nashville, they come out to, to Franklin, to the Carn Plantation, the Carter House, all these historical places. Uh, and it's, we're long overdue for, to have a Native American cultural center that could show them about our Native people as well. Now, Sally, you grew up in Ripley, out in western Tennessee. Tell, yeah. tell me, what was that like for you? Um. My parents moved us in West Tennessee, Lauderdale County, uh, maybe late 1950s. And they moved out here on relocation from federal government. And of course, those kids didn't want to come, but we couldn't do nothing about it. We, we moved with them, so we came out here, ended up in West Tennessee. Uh, it was, well, not. Even on reservation, I left there about maybe 11 or 12 years old, and I felt like I grew up on the reservation. That was my home. Mm-hmm. But then we moved to Tennessee, and that was hard because we left our land, our home. It was a hard time on living on reservation, food and otherwise other stuff that we got to have and we couldn't afford it. So that's why my parents feel like they can survive. We can survive with move out here. So that's how we moved out here. It was hard time. Uh, a lot of things that happening, like Albert was talking about uh, races and, and, and things like that also happened. And uh, of course I was young, don't really understand all that much about it, but I Later time, uh, when I think about it, this is what happened to us at, at that time. So we was in school, we was not treated equal 
I didn't think when I think about it. And things like that, that was going on. And, of course, uh, when I, we were living on the reservation, we didn't go outside of the reservation. We stayed in, in the reservation. But sometimes uh, my parents had to go downtown, things like that, to get some groceries. And we were treated differently, and it was not easy. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil e. Colonna. We're talking about the indigenous communities here in Middle Tennessee and what they would like to see preserved in the present and future. Charles Robinson is still here with us. As a member of the Choctaw Nation, you mentioned earlier in the show what it was like to come to Middle Tennessee from Oklahoma. How do you keep your traditions alive here? Well, we still, my wife and I, my wife is Lakota and Blackfoot, so we still uh, practice some of the ceremonial stuff, the prayer way of praying uh, with our children. Uh, so we, we're very intentional about doing that locally. Uh, but we also spend time with my wife's organization traveling to native communities throughout uh, South Dakota, Montana, Idaho, up into Canada, all over uh, uh, so, but it, we just had to be very intentional about it. Dante, you grew up in Mexico. Tell me, what was your upbringing like? Well, it was a daily struggle. Um, I grew up in Mexico. I grew up in Ciudad Juarez, which is in the border town uh, opposite of El Paso, Texas. And so it was a daily reality that I would uh, cross the border every day to get to school and to just um, participate in American life in order to get an education so I can push my family ahead. Uh, my family's from southern Mexico, and my mom's from central uh, from central Mexico. They both have, they both come from tribal backgrounds, and so crossing the border and being part of um, being a first generation American, I faced a lot of um, the same kind of racist sentiments, but in different ways. Mostly people, um, because of the way I looked, questioning if I was American or. Um, making fun of my indigenous heritage uh, from both my mother and my father's side. So that that was um, what it was like. And from uh, Mexico uh, during the during the time that I was a child, um, the Mexican government decided to have the quote unquote war on the narco. And so uh, this war on uh, the narco had a lot of negative consequences to the common person to the point that you would see um, people hanging from bridges and uh, other kind of intimid uh, intimidation tactics aimed at, against the government and uh, to sort of uh, show um, how much power they had and that the people were caught in the middle ground uh, with them mostly suffering the casualties. Hearing Charles's story and Sally's and, and some of Albert's, you know, I'm curious, a lot of times we don't think of other indigenous people when we have this conversation. How important is it for you that, that folks understand about the indigenous struggles of people in Mexico, maybe Pacific Islanders, people from Alaska, the wide, vast diaspora of indigenous folks? I think it's very important. Um, in Vanderbilt itself, we... We have the Indigenous Scholars Organization, which is the only organization on campus for Indigenous students. And we serve as a gathering space for Native American, Alaskan Native Pacific Islander, and all other Indigenous students on campus. And it's the, the campus, um, 
the indigenous student body only make up about one to two percent. And I think it's building that solidarity between indigenous people, no matter their nationality or what um, kind of imaginary borders are created for us. That, uh, that I think that's where true power lies is realizing that I, as an indigenous Sotil Maya, um, as I'm living here in Nashville, Tennessee, should honor the elders like Albert Bender uh, that are doing their work here and uh, following in their guidance. I want to talk about how you all celebrate your heritage and traditions. Dante, how do you celebrate your culture and keep that tradition alive? I, it's a little bit difficult. Um, the um, I, as a Sotil Maya, um, kind of had to see how I can retain my tradition, but there's there's very limited community here being so far away from home. I still participate in tradition on my own and hope to one day teach my children about my tradition. But um, I think it's very difficult to engage in that tradition. I sometimes uh, ponder what, how I can engage community and engage other people in, in my tradition and uh, in other people's, but it, it's a little bit difficult being so far away from home. Charles, I have 30 seconds. I'd like to hear from you. So uh, it's important to remember that the native people, both in the United States, Canada, and Mexico and further south, they're all indigenous people. It was governments and uh, the white governments that drew a line in the sand and began to call us Mexicans and Native Americans. But uh, like uh, Dante, that, that's all tribal people. But uh, we get to dance in our powwows and celebrate, come together with other like-minded and like-hearted people to celebrate our ancestry. And, um, and opportunities like this to be on the, the show with you help expand that and grow that for us. So thank you for having me today. That is Charles Robinson of the Tennessee Archaeological Advisory Council. Also with him were Sally Wells, president of the Native American Indian Association, and Dante Reyna from the Vanderbilt Indigenous Scholars Organization. Thanks to you all for coming on to the show. We really, really appreciate it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we pay tribute to country music legend Loretta Lynn, who died last week at age 90. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Le Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.